Our text this morning is in Ephesians chapter 3, specifically verses 7 through 13. As Paul will be completing for us this morning his aside that began in verse 2. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon His word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word and by the power of the ministry of your Holy Spirit, it would take up residence in our hearts, that we would be changed by it. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, the Apostle Paul will be helping to correct us from two modern misconceptions about the gospel in the church. The first misconception is that church is something optional, that God deals specifically with individuals, and that we have sort of an optional choice to to add on to sort of supersize Christianity by being a part of the church. The second is that God gives us the gospel, and that really it's up to us whether we just keep it to ourselves, or whether we share it with others and live lives so that others can see the work of Jesus in us. In this section of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul reminds us that when God gives us the gospel... He expects us to share it with others. That when God comes to us in His mercy, He expects us to be a part of His people, for He has called to Himself not only individuals, but a people. He is fashioning the church. And so this morning, Paul will show us two things about the gospel that are helpful in this vein. The first thing that Paul does is he describes to us 
the grace that he has received, a grace to declare to others. The second thing we see is Paul describing the process of declaring that grace to others. How he brings the gospel to others around him. A grace to declare and declaring grace. Let's begin then by looking at how Paul describes the grace that he has received from the Lord in the gospel. He begins by describing himself as a recipient of this grace. Now, where we are this morning is a continuation of Paul's sideline of thought. You remember that he had stopped praying for the Ephesians. He was about to begin praying for them, and he stopped to remind them about the great mystery of the gospel. Now he's going to continue on and tell them about his ministry to declare the gospel to them and to others. And all of this he is doing with an eye toward laying the foundation for calling the Ephesians and you and me to live out the gospel in every area of our life. That will take up the bulk of the rest of the epistle to the Ephesians. The rest of chapter 3 and chapters 4 through 6 are applying the gospel to our lives in every area and in all our relationships. But before he can do that, Paul wants to make sure that we understand the gospel, its purpose and its power. Paul begins this by making very clear to us that the gospel does not originate with him. He says in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. So what Paul wants us first to see is that the gospel is God's work. Now this is right in line with what he has been doing in the earlier portions of this letter. You remember, especially in chapter 1, he described the gospel as God's work to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, and those who were the enemy of God. Now we have to remember that grace is not some kind of substance that floats around and we can partake of. Grace is God's mercy to sinners. And so when Paul begins to describe this, he emphasizes it by using a word over and over. Do you see that in verses 7 and 8? He says over and over that this is given. He says it was given to me. It is a gift that was given to me. And this is important because I think if anyone could have earned God's grace... Paul would be the candidate for that. Think about the life that Paul lived. He abandoned everything that was his own upon the calling of God. And he went out and planted churches and encouraged Christians and did missionary journeys and wrote about half of the New Testament. I mean, Paul's resume is a good resume. If anyone could say, I deserve the grace of God, Paul would be the one to say it. And yet Paul goes out of his way to remind us that the grace of God only came to him as a free gift. 
If Paul could not earn the grace of God, how could any of us think that we could earn the grace of God? You see, Paul wants us to know and to remember how undeserving he is. Now, there is a good and a bad way in which we as Christians can remember our past. The bad way to remember our past is to be focused upon all the times that we have failed God. All the things that we have fallen short of in such a way that it discourages us, it depresses us, it takes us farther away from God's people and from God's work. But there is also a positive way to remember our past and what God has done. And that's what I think Paul does with his perspective. Paul remembers who he was. That he was a persecutor of the church. That he was undeserving of the grace of God. That he actually deserved the wrath and punishment of God. This is the theme that Paul takes throughout all of his letters. You may remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes himself as the least of the apostles. Now, objectively, as we stand back and look at this, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Look at how much of the Bible that Paul has written. How many of the verses that you have memorized in your life were authored by Paul? And there are other apostles, some of them we can't even recall their names. And yet Paul is the least? And I think what's going on here is Paul recognizes who he once was and how undeserving he was of the gift of God's grace. And so he calls himself the least of the apostles. He goes a step further in 1 Timothy 1. He says that he is the chief of all sinners. Now, we're not going to set up some sort of criteria or contest to see if someone's a worse sinner than Paul. But I think what's going on here is the closer Paul comes to the Lord, the more he understands God's holiness, the more he understands how God has changed him, the more Paul sees the depth of his own sin. And his sin was indeed great. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a murderer. He was one who breathed out threats and anger. And now here, Paul wants us to get that same point. And he does something that does not go well with a back to school. Some of you young people understand this principle in your home. It's when you get excited about something and you say, I did really good. And mom looks at you and rolls her eyes and says, You did what? You did well. We don't use good that way. We use well. It happens in our household. Good and well are two of the words that are mixed up and interchanged wrongly. But Paul, in spite of what our grammarians would like, in spite of what school teachers would tell him, he actually uses impossible grammar to get this point across to us. We've seen this before. Paul's not above making up words. And so here he makes up some grammar. He takes a superlative, like best, except for here he uses the word least. Now the least is the least, right? There's nothing less than the least. 
Except for what Paul does is, he takes a comparative like er, lesser, and he jams it on least, and it becomes least er. That makes no sense grammatically. Our translators are afraid to translate it that way for being called up on grammatical charges. So they emphasize it by saying, the very least. But you see Paul's point. There is no one less than him. He is the least of all the saints. And he understands this because of who he is, is only because of God. Not because of himself. And he tells us that the power that brought about this change was God. Why wasn't he who he was? He had heard of Jesus Christ. He knew of Jesus, except for the fact that he hated Jesus and wanted to persecute his followers. What changed Paul? It wasn't greater study. It wasn't a change in circumstances. No, it was the power of God that was required to change him. It was meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the power of Jesus Christ changing Paul's heart and who he was. And Paul puts it this way. He says it was the working of God's power in verse 7. Now, this word working has within it the connotation of an energizing working. It's effectual working. It's not just that God is at work. God is at work and He makes His work accomplished in Paul. Now this is helpful for you and for me. Because it tells us that we must be born again. That if we are to be changed, that if we are to be right with God, that if we are to know our true purpose, the only way that can happen is if God changes us. That if God's effectual work comes upon us and we are changed from enemies to children and we are changed from unbelievers to believers and we are confronted with the cross of Jesus Christ and in the person and work of Jesus we understand there is our only hope. This is the power of God. The second thing that Paul begins to describe for us are the riches that are found in Christ. The blessings that are in the gospel and that come from Jesus. And he describes them this way as the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now this word unsearchable could be translated a half dozen ways. The idea behind it is it's beyond figuring out. It's beyond searching. It's even beyond comprehension. It's it's unsearchable. You may remember in old-time westerns when there would be one of these guides and he would, as they were tracking someone, he would kneel down and look at at the ground and see three blades of bent grass and see one piece of disturbed dirt and say, there were eight men on horseback, They were carrying a heavy load. They have sufficient water, but not enough food. And two of them were riding together on a horse. Those trackers that can understand everything and know exactly where people are going. Well, this is like the exact opposite. It's untrackable. You don't know where you're going. 
You don't know where this will take you. It's unsearchable. There are riches in Jesus that come to you and you don't really understand in full comprehension where they come from or where they will take you. This is the exciting and, quite frankly, fearful part of following Jesus. Jesus takes you places that you wouldn't go of your own accord. He puts you in circumstances that you don't think you're ready for. He gives you great tragedies that you never could have expected or thought you could make it through. He gives you great challenges that you never think you could accomplish on your own. These are great riches that come to you in Jesus. No one could have gotten these riches by themselves No one could have understood. This gets us back to the mystery of the gospel. We never could have on our own figured out the solution that God would come up with to the problem of sin. But this word also means that we never fully comprehend these riches. Paul is constantly amazed at what Jesus brings to him. And these riches can never be exhausted. And that just gives us a different attitude toward life, doesn't it? Have you ever been in a situation where you are eating food with your friends? You open up the pizza box and the first thing you do is you count the number of pieces and quickly divide by the number of people. You're wondering how much pizza you will get. Or at the dinner table, as your favorite part of the meal is passed around, you put an extra scoop or two of what it is on your plate Mom or dad may even say, you never eat that much, but you want it because you don't want to run out. You don't want to get less than what other people get. You see, we don't have to be worried in that way with Jesus. We don't have to hoard the riches of Christ like food we're afraid is going to run out. And that changes entirely our attitude toward others. If somehow we thought we could exhaust the riches of Christ, we would not share Jesus with others. We would keep Him all to ourselves. But the truth of the riches of grace is that we can never exhaust them. And so we are unburdened. We are free to share Jesus with everyone around us. We want them to experience the riches and blessing that we experience. Now what are these riches? What is it that Jesus gives to us? I think Paul summarizes this well in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. First, wisdom. How would I know about the world and its purpose? How would I know about God? How would I actually know truly about myself apart from Jesus? You see, Jesus teaches us about a holy and a loving God. Jesus shows me my sin and my need for God. Jesus tells me about the world and its purpose and meaning in light of God's word. Jesus is our wisdom. What riches we are given by God to understand the world around us from the perspective of our Lord, the Creator. The second thing that Jesus gives to us is righteousness. 
And a question that arises in our minds is, how can I be right with God? If God is who He says He is, isn't everything hopeless? God is perfect and infinite in His holiness. He knows not only everything we do, but everything we think and intend. How can I possibly stand before such a God? But Jesus, Paul tells us, is given to us as our righteousness. And as soon as you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And you are forgiven because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God doesn't pretend your sins don't exist. God doesn't give an unjust judgment and let people off scot-free. No, He looks at the believer in Christ and He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And because of that, we can stand before God and are forgiven. But once we are forgiven, how can we remain in a relationship with God? It's one thing to ask for forgiveness, but what happens when I keep on sinning? Do we live in constant fear that God will kick us out of the house, kick us out of His family? How do I deal with the sin that keeps coming over and over to me? Paul tells us that Jesus is also our sanctification. Jesus is our surety that we will not fall. He deals with our sin. He keeps us in relationship with God. And He makes us more and more progressively holy. The fourth thing that Paul says is that Jesus is our redemption. We might ask ourselves, how can I deal with all of the lack in my life? Everything that I'm wanting. How can I deal with all the pain that's in my world? Well, again, here Jesus is given to us as our redemption. Jesus has promised to glorify us and to change us. He has promised to take us out of this world. No, better than that, He has promised to transform our world. He is everything that we need. The third thing that Paul tells us about is His charge to fulfill Paul knows what he has. He knows he has received undeserved grace. He knows he has blessings beyond all understanding. So what does he do next? Well, central to what he has been given is a charge to tell others. Do you see this? The grace that was given to him is given to him in the context of him being made a minister to preach to the Gentiles. And to bring to light for everyone. You see, there is so much that Paul begins to talk about the grace given to him to preach. Because the gospel begins with us as individuals. But it does not end there. That's because the gospel is wider in scope than each of us. Paul is in the middle of talking about the church and what God is doing. And so what he is telling us is that the work of God is bigger than him. Is that an encouragement to you? 
that the work of God is bigger than you. It encompasses more than simply your problems and your issues and your relationship with God. That God is building for Himself a people. He is gathering to Himself a family. He is changing and establishing His kingdom. He will transform all of creation to glorify Himself. And so what Paul does is he declares what God has done. And it's important that his task is to preach. Now, preaching is a heralding. It is a declaring. Now, do you know what a herald is? Perhaps you recall from old movies or from cartoons, it's someone that would come out, usually with a funny hat, and a big, long trumpet, and a flag. And he would come out and blow the trumpet. Get everyone's attention. And then he would declare what the king had said. That was his job. Now notice, the herald couldn't make up what he was going to say on the fly. The herald couldn't change the message that he was given. And the herald doesn't come out and apologize for the message before he gives it. No. He declares it. And this tells us what the gospel is. The gospel is something to be declared. Now this can be hard to understand today, can't it? As a matter of fact, it can actually be a pretty fearful thing. Because if you declare the gospel with your life and with your words, you are very likely not going to get a pat on the back from the world. If you do get a pat on the back, it's probably so that someone can put a kick-me sign on you. The world does not want us to declare the gospel. But we have to understand that this is God's truth, not ours. That we are not free to change it. That we declare God's truth to a watching world and we let the chips fall where they may. Now, This does not give us the right to be obnoxious. It does not give you the right to be as self-centered, proud, or arrogant in the way you speak to others as you want to be, and then simply lay that on the Holy Spirit's back, so to speak. Oh, well, they wouldn't listen to me. Must be the gospel. Couldn't have been that I smacked him in the face. Couldn't have been that I insulted his mother. No, it must be the gospel. No. We are still called to be winsome, to declare God's truth, to entreat others to come to Christ, to tell them of the glories and the riches that are available in Christ. You see, Paul did everything he could to bring the message of the gospel to others. He said he would become all things to all men. We are not to be a barrier to the gospel. And there is also... Do you see here a darkness to be dispelled? Paul says not only is he called to preach, he is called to bring to light for everyone. Now we have to understand that sin has cast a darkness over the world. And you may have someone that you know and love dearly and you can't understand why they will not believe on Jesus. How could they not get it? 
What part of do you want to go to hell forever do you not get? But you see, the problem we need to understand is that people are enveloped in darkness. And we can't, of our own accord, dispel that darkness. It requires a work in the power of God. This is the work of the gospel. And Paul is telling us that as he brings the gospel in the power of God, it is God who dispels the darkness around him. The grace was given to Paul to share to others. Well, Paul has this message. The next question we ask ourselves is, for whom is it for? He declares this grace to others. And the first thing that we see is that this grace is to be declared to a varied audience. God has purposed for His message to reach a wide audience. The first thing that He tells us is He is called to preach to the Gentiles. Now, over and over again, Paul keeps making this point. I think by now we've gotten it. That Paul is called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to those who were separated, to those who were divided off, that they are now united with the people of God. And that this has been done by fundamentally changing not only people, but the world. This is what God does. And so the purpose of the church is to preach Christ and His work throughout the world. Now this means something else to us. That the purpose of the church is not to preach politics. Because we think our circumstances will get better that way. The purpose of the church is not to preach morality. Because we think that will make life easier in the world. No, God has given to us the gospel to preach. Because it is the gospel that transforms the world. It is the gospel that transforms rulers and nations. It is the gospel that transforms laws and lives by changing hearts. The gospel is our message. And when we trade the gospel in for secondary effects like politics or morality or religion then we fail to be the heralds that God has called us to be. And we actually are defeating our own cause. We think we are wiser about how to change things in the world than God. This is simply not true. Paul preaches to the Gentiles, but he also preaches to the world. Look at verse 9. He is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan (coughs) of the mystery hidden for ages in God. What Paul is saying here is that the church is the display of God's glory to the world. Now, this is not just true Vaguely of the big C church. It is true of individual expressions of that universal church, like the congregation here in Katy, Texas. We are called to be the display of God's glory to the world around us. The church is to show God's work in the world. How God is bringing together different people in Christ 
Showing the wisdom of God in making us different. And Paul puts this in a very obvious way with his language. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now the word here for manifold means many-sided. A wide variety. But there's a word picture built within it. There is a Greek word that is used to translate the coat of many colors that Joseph had. You remember that from vacation Bible school and Sunday school days, the coat of many colors. Well, this word is that word with another many put on top of it. It is a manifold, many-colored, varietyed wisdom. It shows that God has a great variety within His kingdom and within His world. And we are to celebrate our differences. Because the church is not a nation or a government. The church is not a banding together of people who are all the same. The church is a multinational, around-the-world organism, family, that God is calling together. And God has created us with our differences. Not differences in terms of where we are going or what we believe. We have our unity in Jesus Christ and we are traveling to God's celestial city. But we have vast differences in where we live, the type of food we eat, our skin color, where we grew up or what country we were born in. And God has given to us all of these differences to show His wisdom and glory. And the church is to be a picture of this. It is the glory of God to show His manifold wisdom. There is a third audience that Paul is preaching and teaching to. And this is perhaps the most unique. He says that he is bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now the clue is in the heavenly places. Because when Paul is using these words, rulers and authorities, he doesn't mean the mayor and the governor. Where Paul uses these words throughout his letters, he's referring to the unseen realm of angels, demons, powers and principalities. You see, there is a cosmic stage that the church is on. God's plan is so marvelous that the angels desire to know about it. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. As you live your life in the church and follow Jesus, and as you do things that you think are ordinary and ho-hum, you come to worship, you go to Sunday school, you sit and read your Bible at home, you pray at night for your family and friends. You have to understand that as you do these things, You have to have a vision of angels peering down from heaven, anxiously seeing what is going on. Because they want to see the glory of God at work in the church. 
Angels desire to know what the church is up to. This is what Peter is getting at when he says that the prophets declared about the Lord Jesus Christ things that the angels desire to look into. You have to imagine them peering anxiously, poking each other. Look, look at what she's doing. Look, look at him. This is the work of God in His church. And again, don't just think of it amorphously throughout the world. Think about it in your home, with your family, in your life. God's glory is on display. The second thing we see is the centrality of the church. That the church is central to all of history. And this is completely contrary to what the world views. When was the last time you saw an in-depth Associated Press story on a mission work? Or a Sunday school for children? Or a church in general? And yet, if someone who is an assistant in one of the campaigns of a candidate for president catches a cold, the news coverage is 24-7. Right? Because that's what the world thinks is important. That's where the world thinks all the answers are found. But you see, Paul says something completely different. He says that all of history is designed for the establishing of the church. He says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ. You see, we should be encouraged because all of history is designed to establish the church. The church is central not only to all of history, but the church is central to the gospel. Because the Lord has redeemed a people to be His family. He has chosen the church to declare His message. Have you ever wondered about that? Why God didn't use angels to declare the gospel to people in the same way that He announced the birth of Jesus? I dare say that the angels could probably do a better job of it than us men and women. But God uses redeemed sinners to declare His message of grace and hope. And what this tells us, that as the church is central to all of history, and that the church is central to the gospel, that the church is not optional for us. As we are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are redeemed into His people, with Jesus at our head, declaring the glories of His kingdom. Because you see, all of this, Paul says is founded in Christ. It's not just the work of Christ, but the declaration is a part of God's eternal purpose. And that purpose, Paul says, is realized. We might say carried out, accomplished in Jesus. You see, the church is Jesus' church. It is on Jesus' Mission And Jesus gives us the power that we need to declare the gospel that He has given to us. Do you see? In Jesus we have boldness 
and access with confidence through our faith alone. It is Jesus who brings us to the Father. It is Jesus who gives us confidence in His truth. It is Jesus who gives us the experience of trusting Him. What that means is no matter what the circumstances are, Jesus is enough. Think about Paul's circumstances here. They were hard. He's writing this letter from prison. He's seen all kinds of disappointments in his life. He plants a church in Corinth and they make a mess of it. They're filled with sin and with bickering and with gossip. The church at Colossae goes off believing half-baked truths and falsehoods about the gospel and Jesus. Even here in Ephesus, where Paul had been for some period of time, there is sin and unbelief and heresy. You see, we often think that the church is superfluous because of the difficulties in our life. But the reality is, is that the church is central because of the difficulties we have in life. See, Paul tells us not to lose heart. He says in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Our faith is to be in Christ. Our faith is founded upon Jesus, and Jesus has founded His church and is working through her. We are called to take the grace of the gospel and to bring it to a world that is desperately in need of God's redeeming grace. This is our great hope. It is the expression of God's purpose and kingdom through the church that He is forming through the work of His Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You this morning for the way in which You have revealed the work that You have for Your church. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would make us willing and able to declare Your gospel to the world around us in things we say and in things we do. Lord, we are blessed indeed to know Your grace. And we ask that You would give us hearts that would be set free to bring your grace to others. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.